A meet and happy conversation is the chiefest and the noblest end of marriage, for we find here no expression so necessarily implying carnal knowledge as this prevention of loneliness to the mind and spirit of man. And indeed, it is a greater blessing from God, more worthy, so excellent a creature as man is, and a higher end to honor and sanctify the league of marriage, when as the solace and satisfaction of the mind is regarded and provided for before the sensitive pleasing of the body. John Milton Okay, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is the episode on divorce. If you would like to, you can think of this episode as the marriage episode, despite the title. But I'm going to argue, following uh, this argument made by John Milton in the 17th century, that it is divorce that actually makes marriage possible. When I think about anarchist institutions in our everyday life, I really think that marriage is one of the best examples. It's an example I have used when I am explaining it to people. What we sometimes think of these days as an egalitarian or a companionate marriage. Because when you tell people that you're an anarchist or when you're talking about anarchism, the immediate reaction is to say, that would never work. This is utopian. This is a silly idea. Someone has to be in charge. There has to be a boss. We need command and control in all of our institutions. This is not the case anymore in marriage. Older definitions of marriage patriarchal definitions of marriage required a single decision maker, a boss, a head of the household, a lord and master. But in our 21st century conception of marriage, we have eliminated that. Marriage is, in our idea of it anyway, two people working together for an unknown amount of time, but supposedly the rest of their lives without anyone ever being in charge. How could it be more anarchist than that? And if marriage is understood as the foundation of our society, as the most important and fundamental aspect of our society, as many people, especially people who describe themselves as conservatives, believe, well, if you have rendered marriage as anarchist, you have rendered anarchism the foundation of our society. And for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, marriage is the way we have structured and defined our romantic relationships in popular culture, in political culture, in legal culture, in the commercial realm. Um, health insurance can depend on marriage. For example, I have health insurance because of my marriage. But the people who traditionally define society as resting on marriage also define society as resting on what they called traditional marriage. Marriage has not been in the Western tradition for centuries at least 
an egalitarian institution. If not, probably forever. But my knowledge doesn't go too much back beyond 1500 in most topics. Things have changed. And I'm going to argue that our sense of marriage changed, or at least one of the greatest expressions of how marriage can and should change came from the English Revolution. Yes, we're going to John Milton, we're going to the 17th century, the writer of Paradise Lost is going to explain how to use divorce to make marriage revolutionary. Before that though, we're gonna do a little history of marriage, pre-revolutionary marriage, then we'll get Milton, and then Emma Goldman will show up in a big way for the first time in this podcast. Emma Goldman, a capital A anarchist, a political anarchist from the late 19th and early 20th century, and she will go ahead and make a huge attack on marriage as impossible to make revolutionary or anarchist. And then I will uh, tell you what I think about that, which is to say she's definitely right. Marriage cannot be anarchist. On the other hand, in a world that has marriage, we want our marriages to be as anarchist as they can be every day. My history of the understanding of the patriarchal uh, origins of marriage comes from when I was a college student, and this is not something I learned in college, I was a courier for an abstracting firm, which is a firm that goes to the courthouse and finds the documents when you buy or sell a piece of property. If you've ever bought or sold a house, you need the title. And you have to prove not just that you own the house, but the person who sold you the house owns the house. And the person who sold them the house owns the house. And you go back as far as you can. I never saw any deeds that um, went back to the colonial era, that went back to the 17th or 18th century. If you go back far enough, it just sort of dies out. But they figure, hey, if you've gone back 200 years, no one's going to show up and say, actually, I owned this property in 1737, and thus it could not be sold in 1745. This was in South Carolina, by the way, so this was a colonial state. And I noticed on all of the documents this phrase, to have and to hold, to have and to hold. And I only knew this phrase from marriage. So I, I took it to one of my professors, um, actually one of my film professors, but just an overall knowledgeable guy who I enjoyed talking to. And he laughed and he said, oh, it's so romantic. And then he said, no, seriously, this just tells you that marriage is a property arrangement. To have and to hold doesn't come from marriages. To have and to hold comes from property. Property that you both have and hold. You own and you can use. Marriage is, in this Western tradition, patriarchal. It's feudal, really. Um, it's about having a piece of property. Um, and this led to this legal definition, I think it's called coverture. I'm really not quite sure how to pronounce it. Um, but it is the doctrine that married women do not have legal rights. They are not people with respect to, say, buying or selling property or being able to enter 
into contracts. They are a form of chattel, which that's the same word for cattle, right? It is a living creature that is property. <sighs> Sorry, I'm, you know, stressed to be discussing chattel because uh, the, the form of slavery, when we say slavery in America, we are usually referring to the 18th and 19th century um, form of slavery uh, known as chattel slavery, African chattel slavery or race-based chattel slavery. There are other forms of slavery in which uh, the human beings are not just considered animals in which they do have rights in a different way. In chattel slavery, there are no rights. And human chattel is a contradiction in terms. What are humans? What are people? Well, they have rights. They are not just animals. What is chattel? Chattel is uh, property which has no rights. So human chattel is something that has rights that also does not have rights definitionally. <laughs> it's, um, it doesn't work most famously. If you want to see how human chattel doesn't work, I recommend you read Frederick Douglass's speech. It's usually called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. He is hilarious. He shows brutally that the concept of human chattel doesn't work. One of the things he says over and over again is the reason why we have laws is because humans are moral beings. There are no laws against cows doing anything because cows are just cows. If a rock falls on you or a cow steps on you, neither the rock nor the cow has done anything wrong. But humans can be punished for doing bad things because they're better and smarter than cows. They are moral. They have been touched with rationality. Douglas points out that in the South, um, the laws for enslaved people were much stricter than the laws for white people. So he says, on this reasoning, this must mean that the enslaved black people are superior rationally to the white people. Now, you know, the people who made those laws didn't think that way, but also their laws, in order to be logically consistent, must be read that way, which is why they're simply not logically consistent. This is Douglas's point. So you can have human chattel, obviously, but you cannot make it make sense. It will never make sense. All right, back to this idea of to have and to hold. This is a contract. A contract delineates what you can do, what other people cannot do, and very importantly, what the state can and cannot do and how the state can regulate this. So if you have a contract that says you can have and hold a piece of property, the government can't take it away. Of course, you know, the government can take it away with eminent domain, et cetera, et cetera, but more or less, the government is not allowed to take it away except for when the government breaks its own rules, which is fine because the government makes the rules so they're allowed to break the rules. That's what eminent domain is. As this relationship between, you can call them the subjects or the citizens and the state or the king is developing, liberalism is the narrative of these rights being created. The rights of the people, of individual people, against the rights of the king or the state. 
in the English tradition, going all the way back to the Magna Carta, the king is giving up rights, is admitting that he can be restrained by the law. And the Magna Carta really wasn't very important, but they, they found it um, in the Enlightenment period, I think. I'm not sure the details on that. We're like, oh, hey, remember, this is a thing we do. We restrain the king's rights with law. I would maybe it's the 16th and 17th century when they find the Magna Carta. Um, you can look it up. Sorry, my knowledge is failing me here. Okay, now we've got this really famous idea. It underlies so much of liberalism and the American Revolution. A man's home is his castle. That is a 17th century, a little before Milton ruling by this lawyer and judge named Edward Cook. The actual ruling is. The house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well for defense against injury and violence as for his repose. And the important thing is that this is a case in which the sheriff, the armed representative of the state, wants to come inside the house. And this idea, it's called the castle doctrine, that your house is yours and now you don't even have to own it you can just be renting it but if you've got that contract that it is yours the government can't come into your house the sheriff can't bang down the door unless again like eminent domain the government has filled out a bunch of paperwork allowing it to break the rule for good reasons this is what a warrant is and this idea of the castle doctrine has just become more and more important in American and British law. Here's William Pitt the Elder in 1763. He's attacking the Cider Bill, which is a bill that will tax the cider that people have in their house. People made alcohol in their homes. The poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail, its roof may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storm may enter, the rain may enter, but the king of England cannot enter. All his force dares not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. So that was a 1763 law in England, and what really causes the American Revolution is when similar laws, they're called the Intolerable Acts, get passed against the colonists. The king wants to come inside your house. The Third Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which almost never gets mentioned, is that there is no quartering allowed of soldiers in your house. Because the British government was requiring the colonies to pay for their own defense, and they said, if you can't afford to build barracks for the soldiers, we're just going to stick them in your house. And this upset people enormously. You can render under Caesar, you can pay the king taxes because the king made the money, but send someone inside my house? No. A man's home is his castle. We can take this all the way up to the recent controversy over no-knock warrants. I mean, that doesn't that wouldn't make sense to William Pitt or Edward Cook, a no-knock warrant. If the crown, if the state wants to come inside your house, they have to announce themselves. They have to do it legally. They have to give you a chance to dispute. A no-knock warrant throws away 400 years of law. That's why people 
feel unbelievably aggrieved by no-knock warrants now. Okay, so with that aside, there's a problem with the castle doctrine. You've probably figured it out already. A man's home is his castle. This is a feudal thing. This is a patriarchal thing. And that means the government cannot come in and interfere with the man's property in his home. And that includes his wife. Remember, to have and to hold applies to the house, to the cattle, to the children, in fact, and to the woman in the house, the wife. So this is not anarchism. This is merely a transfer of sovereignty from the big king to the little king of the household. And if we are going to find anarchist relationships and anarchist marriages, the marriage where there is no boss, where there is no dominion, you are going to need rights for women. This is a huge aspect of 19th century, especially feminism. And by the middle of the 20th century, women have all of these rights. Um, the right to vote, the right to own property, etc. Now, I don't think you need me to tell you that these rights are not evenly distributed. So they're not given to everyone legally all at the same time. And even when they are given to everyone legally, they're not actually given. So wealth, race, and geography also hugely figure into whether women can actually use these rights. The other thing that you need to keep in mind for our story, the to have and to hold story, is for a while women have these rights, but only if they are unmarried. But by the middle part of the 20th century in America and Britain, women do have these rights, including married women. So we have equality, except we do not because women do not necessarily have the right to get a divorce, not even by mutual consent, let alone if the woman is the only one who wants the divorce. You will see in Hollywood movies in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, men lying and saying that they have been unfaithful or did something else to allow their wife to get a divorce, because even under mutual consent, they cannot get a divorce. And that's the thing that prevents marriage from being equal. You can give women rights, but if you don't let both parties in the relationship have a chance to get out of the marriage, it's not a partnership. Okay, now that I've taken us to the 20th century, I want to go back to the 17th century and talk about John Milton. The 17th century is super fun and interesting because you get what is sometimes called the English Civil War, but perhaps more properly should be called the English Revolution. It's called the English Civil War if you want to think it's just a bunch of people running around fighting for power. It's called the English Revolution if you think it's actually a shift in power, and I think it is. At least you get tons of revolutionary ideas at this time, I've mentioned some of these people already, the levelers who basically want democratic liberalism hundreds of years before anyone gets it, the diggers 
who want anarcho-communism. Only farmers, no kings, no lawyers, a complete utopian paradise of Christian farmers, and the ranters who who want a lot of things. I have not read enough of the ranters to fully understand what they want, but one of the things they do want is a form of sexual liberation, which uh, upsets the diggers and the levelers a lot. All these groups don't want to be associated with one another. But you also have the more mainstream radicals, the people who actually win, the Puritans. Oliver Cromwell is the famous leader, but the great uh, poet and writer of the Puritans is John Milton. And there's a recent book, I haven't had a chance to read it, by Nicholas McDowell called Poet of Revolution. Milton really was a radical. And when you get the early 19th century British romantic uh, radicals and anarchists, they almost all look back to Milton. Milton is the guy who reimagined Satan as a heroic rebel rather than a evil demon, which it's clear that Milton wanted his Satan to still be Satan, to still be evil. But boy, is it hard to read him as anything but the hero now. So it's no surprise that we find a version of anarchism or something sympathetic to anarchism from Milton, the poet who the anarchists most love. But Milton was a revolutionary in a lot of ways, and he wrote some really famous descriptions of marriage, and he wrote them in his defense of divorce. The quote I gave you at the beginning of this episode is not Milton writing an ode to marriage. It's Milton writing an ode to marriage if he can get divorced. Without divorce, according to Milton, there is not the possibility of a real marriage. And what is a real marriage? It is definitely not women as chattel. It's not even about sex, according to Milton, which is shocking in the 17th century. It is about men and women as intellectual equals and a focus on an intellectual, consensual partnership. To go back to that opening quote, a meet and happy conversation is the chiefest and noblest end of marriage. For we find here no expression so necessarily implying carnal knowledge as this prevention of loneliness to the mind and spirit of man. So meet means appropriate, perfectly suited. So marriage is about two people who are perfectly suited intellectually. It's not about sex, or as he describes it, carnal knowledge. And the goal is to prevent loneliness. And he says prevent loneliness in the mind and spirit of man. I'm not sure here whether he means man as in just males, men as we would say now, or whether he means man to mean mankind, in which case women are included but in a subordinate position. I don't think it matters which one he means, though, because he's very clear later on that the point of marriage is primarily for men. It is valuable for women but it is primarily for men. So whichever version of man he means there, in other cases, there are places where he makes it very clear that although he believes in a consensual and in some way equal relationship, he seems much more interested that it be important for men. Okay, here's, here's another version of this description that makes the sexism a little more clear, I guess. Since I talked about it long enough, I'll give it to you. 
the apt and cheerful conversation of man with woman to comfort and refresh him against the evil of solitary life. So there it's clear that women are still helping men. The point of marriage is still for men. But it's also an apt and cheerful conversation. It's just lovely. It's not anarchist, but it's lovely. So what's the alternative to this meet and happy conversation? It's not to have and to hold. He is not worried about that. He really seems mostly concerned that people are defining marriage as about sex. And he doesn't want marriage to be about sex. He wants marriage to be about conversation. In that way, perhaps you could argue that marriage is about anarchism. A true conversation does not and cannot have a master or a leader. So perhaps Milton is unknowingly being a little bit more egalitarian by stressing conversation than he means to. So Milton has a problem because he's writing in a Christian tradition. He has to deal with Paul's justification for marriage. It is better for them to marry than burn. In this case, burn with lust. Some people have argued Paul means burn in hell. That's not what he means. He means burn with lust. And Milton says uh, there's no way Paul could be talking about marriage that way. Milton, quoting Milton again, Marriage is a human society, and all that all human society must proceed from the mind rather than the body, else it would be but a kind of animal or beastish marriage. If the mind, therefore, cannot have that due company by marriage, that it may reasonably and humanly desire, that marriage can be no human society but a certain formality, or gilding over of little better than a brutish congress, and so in very wisdom and pureness be dissolved. So, if the marriage is just sex, it can't be something that God wants. Milton's God is not a legalistic God. He's not a God who's going to say, yeah, okay, so sex is uh, bad unless you have a signed form in triplicate first, and then sex is Good. Okay, so make sure you get that form signed. And that's what um, Paul sounds like he's saying. Milton actually says, if that's the case, if that's what Paul means, then he's just talking about human being being cattle. And we know Paul would never say human being are cattle. I think Paul would say that, but Milton has to make his revolutionary Christianity work with Corinthians. So that's what he's doing. Sex cannot be the point of marriage because sex is something that animals do. And so marriage is just slapping some stupid legality on some animal desires. This is hypocritical. This is nonsense. And Milton says, God doesn't care about such legalities. God cares about humanity being happy and being good. So the danger is that people's minds will be incompatible. Here's Milton again. That indisposition, unfitness, or contrariety of mind arising from a cause in nature unchangeable, hindering and ever likely to hinder the main benefits of conjugal society, which are solace and peace, 
is a greater reason of divorce than natural frigidity, especially if there be no children and that there be mutual consent. Okay, so first of all, sorry I stumbled over uh, Milton's 17th century spelling a little bit. This is another quote that just strikes me as so indicative of a anarchist, of an egalitarian marriage. Frigidity is not the problem, which is lack of sex. What we actually want is intellectual compatibility, and we want it to provide peace and solace most importantly, and this is where, again, Milton is more egalitarian in some places than others. He says mutual consent, mutual consent. Both parties should be agreeing to be in this marriage, and then it should be able to be dissolved, especially if both parties want it to be. The feminist conception of divorce is that one party should be able to dissolve the marriage, at least if that person is the woman. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But in Milton's time, you can't get a divorce even if both parties want it. And that, for him, makes marriage something that is not worth having. If you are trapped in that marriage, you are trapped. A marriage without conversation is, according to Milton, drooping and disconsolate household captivity without refuge or redemption. Marriage is imprisonment unless you have divorce. There is no redemption. Uh, I'm briefly going to plug now uh, a, a movie called Divorce Italian Style. Um, it came out in the 60s, early 60s, and it is uh, about a country, Italy, where divorce is not legal for any reason. And it's about a man who decides he has to murder his wife. Because there is a loophole to this without refuge or redemption. And it is death doing us part. So there's some great social satire that ties really well into this episode. I'm not going to say anything more except I highly recommend it. Okay. The point of that movie, though, and the point of Milton, is that marriage needs to be this living breathing thing otherwise it's a lie otherwise it's hypocrisy otherwise it's just sex and the only way to make that happen is to make sure everyone can put an end to it i'll give you one last quote from milton marriage is a covenant the very being whereof consists not in a forced cohabitation and counterfeit performance of duties but in unfeigned love and peace if it's being held in place by documents, by laws, by customs, it's no good. Both parties need to want to be together in this marriage for it to be worthwhile. And this is incredibly radical. All the stuff about Henry VIII and his wives in the previous century, it's all about sex. And up into the 20th century, before you get no-fault divorce, it's all about adultery, violence, cruelty, abandonment. It's never about a meet and happy conversation in the whole legal tradition. And Milton, Milton wants it to be meet and happy conversation. And the person who benefits the most is the woman. She's not cattle. She's not even subordinate in this conversation, even if she seems to be subordinate in the value of this conversation. I'm not trying to hide the sexism of Milton. Nevertheless, this is a hugely uh, 
empowering vision of divorce um, to the point that uh, once we really get into the age of revolution, the post-1789 age of revolution, divorce does become an important thing in, in revolutionary circles. So I've got a quote from you from Louis de Benand, sorry, French, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, and he's attacking divorce. Just as political democracy allows the people, the weak part of political society, to rise against the established power, so divorce, veritable domestic democracy, allows the wife, the weak part, to rebel against marital authority. There you go. Take it from someone who lived through the revolutionary age, who hated revolutionary thinking, who considered anarchism unthinkable. Divorce is to women as revolution is to the people. The chance to get their power. Okay, let's leave behind European revolutionary culture and get into the 20th and 21st century, deal with feminism as we know it, and also queer challenges to marriage. Because certainly very little of the writing about marriage makes sense if marriage is no longer confined to a man and a woman. And pretty much all the writing about marriage in the Western context over the last thousand years is about that. So I found this fascinating article uh, from the early 90s by uh, Professor Barbara Stark. She's a family law professor. And she argues that uh, divorce doesn't work in a certain way in society because it destroys the contract that we have been sort of dancing around. When Milton's talking about marriage is for the man, well, the woman needs to be a co-partner in this meet and happy conversation and also care for the children and also care for the house and the man provides the money. So if divorce happens, the man is still supposed to provide money. At least this is late 20th century American reasoning. But the woman is no longer providing the meet and happy conversation and the household. So Professor Stark says, this is a problem, not necessarily with divorce, but with our patriarchal, heteronormative, gendered society. Here's Professor Stark. In short, from the husband's point of view, he is being required to keep up his end of the bargain to provide financial support, while his former wife is allowed to walk away from hers to provide emotional support and a comfortable home. This typically evokes a response somewhere on a continuum between frustration and rage, and male judges are apt to be empathetic. Withholding support or torturing the supported spouse with late or sporadic payments violates the law. It seems no worse to the husband, however, than the wife's legally condoned behavior, which violates norms deeply rooted in intra-psychic constructs, which is to say people's beliefs. I don't like the intra-psychic constructs part. She's, I guess, using uh, like Lacan or Freud or something. This deal is why some of the wealthier and more powerful feminists in the late 19th and early 20th century resisted suffrage, resisted full legal rights, because they wanted to be able to stay with their husband's money or their money if they were rich 
out of that scary world of work, law, politics, and everything. They wanted more rights for women, but basically what they wanted was for men to be required to uphold their part of the bargain and not do any violence or cruelty. And then that was their version of feminism. You do your part, bring money and be nice to me. I'll do my, my part, stay home, raise the kids and be nice to you. This is, uh, I think, incomprehensible to us as a feminist position now, but it was, you could call it a uh, conservative feminist position. And divorce, um, divorce is, a, is a bad deal for these women because the men can leave if they don't like their company. And then the women have no recourse because they have no money. So Professor Stark is suggesting that the way we do divorce now, or at least how it was done until relatively recently, where the men can leave but they have to keep providing the money, is another breakdown in this equation. But of course, you could also just not do marriage. That's the, let's say, the capital A anarchist, as opposed to the everyday anarchist response to this problem. Because you see, it's all tied up in money, it's all tied up in gender, it's all tied up in social roles and intra-psychic constructs. Did I get that phrase right? So we could just get rid of marriage. This incidentally also solves the gay marriage problem. If you don't have marriage, you don't have to argue about who gets to count as a married person. And there's all sorts of queer theorists, Michael Warner very famously, who say, who wants gay marriage? We need to get rid of marriage. We don't want queer people to just be trapped in the same to have and to hold property capitalistic structures that straight people have been trapped in for so long. And to prevent this capital A anarchism, anti-marriage perspective, we'll bring in Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman agrees with Milton that the point of marriage is a meet and happy conversation. She says, if the world is ever to give birth to true companionship and oneness, True companionship and oneness. What is that but meet and happy conversation? But she goes on, not marriage, but love will be the parent. Goldman hates marriage. She got married, but she got married as a legal ploy to get rights and citizenship. Because to her, there's no way that marriage can be recovered from a legal and patriarchal document into an egalitarian and anarchist institution. So she'll use it as a legal document because she has to, but she's never gonna think it's anything but that property document. She says, marriage is primarily an economic arrangement, an insurance pact. It differs from the ordinary life insurance agreement only in that it is more binding, more exacting. Its returns are insignificantly small compared with the investments. In taking out an insurance policy, one pays for it in dollars and cents, always at liberty to discontinue payments. If, however, woman's premium is a husband, she pays for it with her name, her privacy, her self-respect, her very life, until death doth part. Moreover, 
the marriage insurance condemns her to lifelong dependency, to parasitism, to complete uselessness, individual as well as social. Man too pays his toll, but as his sphere is wider, marriage does not limit him as much as woman. He feels his chains more in an economic sense. So here I think uh, Emma Goldman is agreeing with Professor Stark. Uh, marriage is a relationship in which a man provides money and a woman provides whatever makes life worth living. And to do that, she has to give up her life, um, give up her own thoughts to provide what? Conversation, but also doing the chores, taking care of the children, providing sex, all of these things. That's what marriage is according to Goldman. And if you get a divorce, according to Goldman, you are just a bitter failure. So Milton wants to redeem marriage with divorce. De Benald wants to prevent marriage from becoming revolutionary or anarchist by keeping divorce out. Goldman's solution is much simpler. No marriage, because marriage always is and always will be a form of chattel. It is, she says, the producer of barrenness, the monotony, sordidness, inadequacy as a factor for harmony and understanding. So Milton says marriage is a prison, a captivity with no refuge unless you have divorce. Goldman says, well, if you have divorce, what is marriage? If you can just enter into it and then leave it again by mutual assent, why would you even bother getting married? Why go through all this trouble? And I think if she had read Milton, well, she probably did read some Milton. Um, but I think if she had read Milton, she would have said, this guy is just trying to reconcile anarchism with a form of hierarchical and patriarchal Christianity. And he's fit them together, but he's had to lop some bits off of both pieces and he's unwilling to acknowledge that. All it is, is this contract. She says, marriage may have the power to bring the horse to water, but has it ever made him drink? The law will place the father under arrest and put him in convict's clothes, but has that ever stilled the hunger of the child? If the parent has no work, or if he hides his identity, what does marriage do then? It invokes the law to bring the man to justice, to put him safely behind closed doors. His labor, however, goes not to the child, but to the state. The child receives but a blighted memory of its father's stripes. It is like the other paternal arrangement, capitalism. It robs man of his birthright, stunts his growth, poisons his body, and keeps him in ignorance, in poverty, and dependence. It also makes a parasite of woman, an absolute dependent. It incapacitates her for life struggle, annihilates her social consciousness, paralyzes her imagination, and then imposes its gracious protection, which is in reality a snare, a travesty on human character. Marriage is a trap. It is a form of capitalism. It is a working arrangement. If you want to fix this, I mean, you can get rid of marriage, but mostly you just need women in the public sphere. You need to get rid of gendered 
expectations. Marriage exists at all, according to Goldman, because women are supposed to be subservient, because women are supposed to be trained in marriage. And I think Goldman would really hate, you know, have it all feminism, lean in feminism, mom and wife and CEO feminism. She would say this is ridiculous. You're making women be exactly like men and like the old style of woman all at the same time. This is just another version of patriarchy. This is just another version of capitalism. Patriarchal gender roles and patriarchal capitalism working together to oppress everyone, especially women. And marriage is just the expression of that. Expression of that crushing, legally binding, socially constructed expectations for women. And I think she's right, as I think that Michael Warner is right, that gay marriage is in some ways a mistake, is in some ways a step backwards, is in some ways a blow against freedom. I am convinced by both of these radicals, Emma Goldman and Michael Warner. Gosh, maybe Michael Warner should have had a bigger part in this episode, but it's already way longer than I meant it to be. Um, you can uh, get rid of the patriarchal and heteronormative ideas of marriage, in which case there's nothing left except for capitalism and coercion, or you can keep them, in which case neither women nor queer people should want to have anything to do with marriage. All that's left is marriage as a little tiny corporation without a CEO, just with two equal partners, um, I guess who are both bosses of children if they have children, which is why marriage is working so well right now for the upper class. It's just another way for the highly educated to work the bureaucracy and get what they want out of that bureaucracy, to get more than their fair share. Okay, I'm convinced. But just like you're not going to see me uh, putting on a mask and going to a, a bank and trying to burn it down. You're not going to see me trying to burn down marriage significance. This is everyday anarchism. I don't believe that the revolution is going to happen and utopia is waiting for us. Goldman didn't either. That's why she got married. Because it is a valuable tool. And with divorce and all the other things that come with an egalitarian marriage, I agree with Milton and with de Benault. Marriage with divorce is revolutionary. It is anarchist. It eliminates absolute power. It replaces it with something that is different, that is more fluid, that is more complicated, that is more consensual. It's less legalistic and less economic. And you're not going to remove those traces without getting rid of law and getting rid of money, which Goldman wants to do. But that's not the world we live in. I think there's a not a battle to be fought between Miltonian no-fault divorce and Goldmanian no marriage at all. 
the battle is about gender, is about legality, is about capitalism. And as long as we have those things, it seems to me that we're going to have marriages. And as long as we have marriages, we are going to need Miltonian, anarchistic, egalitarian marriages. And for that, we need divorce. Okay, that is it for the divorce episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please send me questions at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com about anything you would like to ask, but especially about this episode. Next Friday, the Friday after this episode comes out, I will be doing a Q&A episode, and I would love questions about this episode to answer two weeks from today. That next Wednesday is the first episode of a two-parter. Jesus of Nazareth, part one, Jesus Christ. I hope you will join me. And remember, the music you are about to hear is by David Hill.